Thank you, Howard. Good morning. Whoa. Uh, this morning, we are looking at Jonah and Nahum. Nahum. I preached uh, one summer for a church in uh, League City, Texas. It was um, 1980 or 80. Yes, I believe it was the summer of 1980. And uh, I preached a sermon one Sunday night on Jonah, called him Noah all the way through the sermon. It was 24 years ago. I have an emotional scar. I have refused to teach on this book for the last 24 years out of fear that I can't get through it without calling him the uh, other name. I don't even want to say it. It's, it's, this is a bad thing. I would just ask you, if I start saying the other name, N-O-A-H, that you just translate that Jonah. Because we're not talking about that other fella today. He's way back in Genesis. He and his boat are long gone. We are going to talk about Jonah, not the other guy. Mark's got lessons. If you don't have a lesson, grab one. In addition to Jonah, we're going to talk about Nahum. Again, here's a hand up down here, maybe over there. The, the, we're not going in a, the order in which these last minor prophets are in the Bible, but we're knocking off two more today. That means six down, six to go. Very likely that three weeks from now we'll finish the Old Testament. We'll deal with a little bit of the Apocrypha. Uh, some people have shown a special interest in that and ask uh, uh, that uh, I keep warning them when it's coming because evidently that's the Sunday some people don't want to skip and that's the Sunday some people do want to skip. Um, uh, so uh, that's coming up right around the corner and then we hit the New Testament and uh, I'm just excited and appreciate everyone being here and paying attention. If you don't have past lessons, you can get them off the website or you can hit Philip up over here. He's about four rows back. Philip will not only get your lessons, he can see that you get a good study Bible if you don't have one, see that you get a notebook to put the lessons in if you'd like to. Um, with that, uh, let's uh, uh, launch into Jonah and Nahum. Why Jonah and Nahum out of the Minor Prophets? Why would I group those together? The reason I've grouped those two together is because they share something in common. The city Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria in the 700s. We've heard a lot about Assyria, but because those names are so foreign and because all of us in America at least take in history, world history, I'm sorry, world history and in our uh, high school classes, we just don't learn a lot of this history. And so it's, uh, uh, it's something that the words are a little bit foreign. So I want to keep hammering them home so that we remember who they are. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and both Nahum and Jonah are written about Nineveh. The other prophecies that you read in the other prophets, by and large, are about Israel. Tell Israel to get in gear. Tell Judah that in line. Look out. The Babylonians are going to come wipe you out. Or don't do that. That's not what God wants. Or do this. This is what God wants. And most of the prophecies are directed towards Israel and Judah, God's people. But that's not so for Jonah and for Nahum. Jonah and Nahum are both directed uh, with at least a focus of Nineveh in mind. Where was Nineveh? 
if we go back and look at uh, uh, the Middle East, this is the Mediterranean Sea. That's modern-day Turkey up there. It says Sardis, but that's modern-day Turkey. This is Egypt. You can see the Nile River with the delta up there, the Red Sea. This is modern Saudi Arabia. Uh, 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 you'd have Kuwait right here. This is Iraq. This is Iran, Iran over here. Um, here is where Jerusalem is. This is the Middle East. This is Israel. North of that is Damascus and, and plain old Syria in Old Testament terminology. But Assyria, A-S-S-Y, is this area that you see highlighted in green. This is the Assyrian Empire over a long stretch of time. The core of the Assyrian Empire is this darkest green right here that has Nineveh and uh, Calhua and Asher, those towns along the Tigris River. And uh, those towns uh, uh, served as the, uh, Nineveh at least, as the capital on and off of Assyria for a long time. Nineveh as a town was not an old town. When you think of old towns here in America, what do you think of? Boston, which is what, 500 years old or so? New York, which is... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I think of, of Houston because I grew up in Lubbock and Lubbock was started at like the 1900s and Houston was goes back to the 1800s. So to us, that's a big deal. Well, that's 150 years. Or you go to Boston, that's 500 years. If you expand and you think in terms of the world, what do you think of for old towns? Jerusalem. Jerusalem goes back quite a ways. I mean... Uh, David conquered Jerusalem in 1000 B.C., so Jerusalem's been there for 3,000-plus years. That's an old town. Understand Nineveh was settled in the 2000 B.C. time period. Nineveh, at the time these prophecies are being written, has been around for almost 1,500 years as a town. That is a long time to be a town. Would you agree? Okay. So we've got an old town that's being written about here and an empire built around this old town. It's not only ancient, it's not only the capital of Assyria, but it's not there today. It's the field you see in this picture. There are some ruins that have been dug up. In the 1850s, the British were doing a lot of digging, archaeological digging, and they were in charge of digging uh, Nineveh out of a, what's called a mound of dirt because the sand had just come up over it. And so they managed to dig out some of the walls. They managed to dig out and, and Saddam Hussein has seen rebuilt some of the, the gates uh, of Nineveh. This is the Nurgle Gate, um, which is one of the ways that you would have gone into the city back uh, 600, 700 B.C. Now... That is the subject, in a sense, of these two books. When were the books written? Recognize it's got a long history. It's been there for, you know, from 2000 plus BC on. When were these books written? Well, Jonah, uh, you have a split of opinion on. <clears throat> Some people believe it was written before 612. Some people believe it was written after 612. Why the magic of 612? In 612 B.C., Nineveh was destroyed. Nineveh goes way back time-wise, but 612 B.C. saw Nineveh destroyed by Nabopolassar, who was the king of Babylon. 
And some people say that Jonah was written before it was destroyed because Jonah is preaching to Nineveh. Some people say, no, Jonah was written after Nineveh was destroyed because Jonah is to be interpreted differently than as a historical event. We're going to look at that as we go along, but I want to throw it up here now so you can start jogging it in your brain. Nahum is a little bit easier to pin down. Nahum was somewhere between 663 and 612. The magic of 663, it was 663 when Assyria conquered Egypt. And that's referenced in the book of Nahum. So we know Nahum had to have been written after that. But Nahum is also written before Nineveh is destroyed. Because the whole point of the book of Nahum is to um, predict, if you will, the destruction of Nineveh. So we're in the 600 time range for these books, most likely. Who wrote them? Jonah doesn't say it was written by Jonah. But we know that Jonah was the son of Amittai. That's contained in Jonah. If you go back to 2 Kings, you'll read that in 1425, that Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a prophet. He was a prophet from the area outside of Nazareth in Galilee, uh, which is very interesting because Jesus will claim in, in Matthew and Luke that in some ways Jonah was a Christ-type figure uh, uh, for... Uh, uh, kind of foreshadowing Jesus coming. So I find it fascinating. He's from Nazareth, uh, the Nazareth area. Um, Jonah, by the way, the name Jonah means dove. I didn't put that up there here, but it, it means dove. Nahum, we know absolutely zero about outside of what's in his book. I can tell you that his name means comfort or compassion in the Hebrew which is ironic because his book is talking about the destruction that God's going to bring on the Ninevites. Yet it's a, a, a person of compassion and comfort who's bringing that message. Um, now, with that as background, let's look at the books. We're going to start with Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is just four chapters. It's a very short uh, um, book. Unlike most of the other minor prophets, it does not contain... Uh, uh, thus saith the Lord, here's what you need to do or things are going to be different. Rather, the book of Jonah is entirely a narrative. It's a story. Most, well, all of the other prophet books ha may have some narrative in them, but by and large, the other prophet books are God says you better do this, this, and this or else something bad's going to happen. And the books are composed of these prophecies. Jonah is not that way. Jonah is a story from verse 1 to the end. It's the story of something that happened to Jonah, son of Amittai. And we start with the first chapter. You can follow along in your Bible if you want to. I'm not going to read the story to you, though it reads quite well. And I thought about just reading it. But I'll just tell it to you and uh, we'll skim over parts of it. It starts out with God saying to Jonah, go. I said, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read the first words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away. God says to Jonah, go. Jonah, a prophet, 
I mean, he works for God for a living. That's what he does. That's his boss. God says go. Jonah says no. Probably doesn't say no directly. Instead, he ducks out the back door. Because he had... And and he didn't even have the excuse of pre-bought tickets. Scripture is clear. He goes to Joppa. He gets a boat to Tarshish. And that's where he paid for his fare. He pays for the boat when he gets to Joppa. So Jonah flees and refuses to do what God tells him to do. God wants him to go. God wants him to preach against Nineveh because the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before God. And God wants a message to those people. Now, Jonah doesn't argue with God that we read about. Jonah doesn't say, "Um, excuse me, Lord, we're the chosen people. They're the Ninevites. We hate them. You love us. You didn't pick them. I don't need to be going to preach to them. Let them rot for all I care. You know, ultimately, we've been told they're going to attack us anyway. These aren't my favorite people. So why don't you let them rot and I'll just stay here? There's no argument. Jonah just leaves. He just turns his back on what God wants him to do. And that's the way a lot of us are. Sometimes we argue with God. Sometimes we just ignore him and pretend we didn't hear him. Our kids do that with us sometimes. If your kids... I, sometimes I do that to Becky. Hey, Mark. Well, I'll just pretend I don't hear her. She doesn't have the resources God has to deal with those problems. Um, God's got resources, though, and they happen. No, Jonah gets on the boat. And Jonah is sailing to Tarshish, which we believe is a city off of Spain. Please understand what this means. If you are standing in Israel and you're looking north, God's saying, go to Nineveh. That means turn right. He goes instead to Tarshish. Do you know which way he turned? Left. Okay, so Jonah was not going right. He was going left. And when he gets on the boat, there's a violent storm and the sailors are very concerned and Jonah is fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. And the captain goes down to Jonah and says, look, everybody's praying to their own gods. You're a foreigner. We figure you got a foreign god. You might as well pray to him. So Jonah comes up and the prayers aren't working. The violent storm's about to rip the boat apart. So the sailors cast lots. They kind of, you know, it's a one potato, two potato, three potato, four to see who's it. To see who's upset the gods so bad that this is happening. Well, you would hope, if you're Jonah, that the pagans wouldn't be able to get it right with the one potato, two potato, three potato, four. Right? Wrong. This is one of those days where it's just, you know, if you go against the way of the Lord, the obstacles grow. They don't diminish. You hope. Because that's God gently reproving you back into his area instead of just letting you go your own way where there's ultimate destruction. So, one potato, two potato, three potato, four. Well, guess who's it? Jonah. They said, well, Jonah, what are you doing? Why why are the gods so upset with you? And Jonah says, well, see, I worship a God named Yahweh. And he uses God's name there. You'll know it in your Bible because it's got Lord written in all capitals. That's when they use Yahweh, remember. So, 
Jonah says, the name of the God I worship is Yahweh, and he made the sea. And, oh yeah, I think I already told you I was running from him. And the sailors get real upset about this because they'd have charged him double if they had known they were in for this. So they said, well, what should we do now if you're running from Yahweh and he made the sea? It's pretty obvious he's upset. And Jonah says, well, the thing to do is to throw me overboard. They said, well, they've got a conscience. These are sailors with a conscience. And they said, no, we're just going to row back to land. So they start rowing. Well, the rowing's not working and the storm's getting worse. So finally they said, were you serious about us throwing you overboard? And Jonah said, yeah. And they said, well, okay, but first let's pray. Um, God, don't hold it against us. It's clear you're upset with this fella. So it's not like we're murdering him. We're just giving you what you've been asking for ever since the storm started. And with that, they chunked him overboard. And the storm stills. And the sailors worship Yahweh and sacrifice to him. Poor Jonah is helping to bring people that don't know the Lord to the Lord when he's trying to keep from doing it and running from God. Meanwhile, God appoints a great fish. Now, the Hebrew does not say... Hold on, I got ahead of myself. The Hebrew does not say, uh, I worship Yahweh who made the sea and I'm on the run. Should we throw him in or should we row? Let's throw him in with a prayer. Yes, there we are, we're up. God appoints a great fish. Hebrew doesn't say whale, doesn't tell us what kind of fish, doesn't say uh, uh, anything about it other than it's a great fish. And the fish swallows up Jonah, and Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. And that gets us into chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Chapter 2 is a psalm or a poem of repentance by Jonah. And Jonah uses language that indicates Jonah is dead. Jonah's poem is one of, I'm cast down into the grave. I am in Sheol, which is the Hebrew concept of where you are at the time you die, where you go, where your soul goes upon your death. And so Jonah is lying there using language in his poem of repentance of being dead. And he is dead and buried in the belly of this fish for three days and for three nights. And after that, prayer of repentance and the three days and the three nights passes, chapter 2 ends with the fish vomiting. It's King uh, New International Version's word. Uh, Jonah onto dry land. Now we get to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Jonah is interesting because God starts it out with another instruction. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh. And this time, instead of, but Jonah ran away from the Lord, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. It was a three-day visit type city. I don't know how many of you like to travel. There are cities that take time and cities that don't. Um, we love to travel. We've been blessed with opportunities to travel. But I like to do things quickly. Paris, I mean, you need a day. <laughs> you give me a day. The Louvre, it takes about an hour and a half. You got to see the Mona Lisa. You got to see uh, uh, the Code of Hammurabi, which, by the way, was from Assyria. Okay? It's relevant to this class. 
you can look at a bunch of other paintings on your way to see those, and then you got to see Venus de Milo and think, why is that so special? She's missing her arms. At that point, you're out of there. You hit the crate place, see the Eiffel Tower. You're almost done at this point with Paris, and it's time to get on down the road. Nineveh was a greater city. It took three days, okay? Don't laugh. I've done Paris in a day on multiple occasions. Jonah goes into Nineveh, and he has a very clear message. Please understand, Jonah did not go to Nineveh and teach the theology of Israel. Jonah did not go to Nineveh and tell the Ninevites that they needed to get rid of all of their false gods and worship Yahweh. Jonah did not go to Nineveh and explain that they all needed to take up temple worship in Jerusalem and sacrifice the way God set it up on Sinai for the Jews to do. No. Jonah goes and preaches God's message for the Ninevites, which is very simple. It's repent. And it's fascinating as he does it because while Jonah over and over uses Yahweh and tells the soldier, the, the sailors about Yahweh, when Jonah goes into Nineveh, all of the talk is just using the general word God. These weren't a people who were drawn into a, a privy special relationship with God at this point. These were people whose wickedness God was upset about, and the message was clear. You quit acting wicked, or your city's going down, and it's going down in 40 days. Well, what happens? The people repent, and God has compassion upon the city, Nineveh, and all that it represents, and God doesn't destroy it. Now, think about this. You're Jonah, okay? Put yourself in the shoes of Jonah. Your boss has told you to go do something. You didn't want to do it. You tried not to. You got forced into it. You went in there and you have just been successful. You think about Lewis and people in the ministry. You, well, I guess in a sense we're all in the ministry. But, but people who specifically have that calling, Damon. Can you imagine Damon Shook standing up and preaching what the Lord put on his heart to preach and mass repentance breaking out among the people? What do you think Demond's reaction would be? Joy. And this is what he does. Lewis. Lewis counsels gazillions of people. Those people come to Lewis and there's healing by the hand of God. What's Lewis's reaction? Joy. Well, not Jonah, bless his heart. Jonah, because the people repented and God didn't destroy the city, quote, was greatly displeased and became ticked off. He was angry. Isn't it interesting? This is a man of God. This is his reaction. Jonah was greatly displeased and was angry. And he looks at God and I took this directly out. He says, I told you so. I knew I didn't have to go. I knew you wouldn't destroy him. I know the kind of God you are. We went through this whole fish thing. We went through all this travel. We went through all of the rest of this. I had to come to this corrupt pagan city. I had to walk around and tell everybody that you're going to destroy them if they didn't repent. And what do you do? You don't kill them. This is the kind of stuff that made Jonah's life in his mind just so hard. 
God says to Jonah, I love it, quote, this is chapter 4, verse 4, have you any right to be angry? This is, this is worth looking at. Hang on. Chapter 4, verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Do you know what Jonah's answer is? He doesn't answer. He pouts. Look, Jonah just went out and sat down at a place east of the city. Which is interesting. It's on the other side of the city from where God's people are and where Jonah's from. He's like, I walked all the way through. Fine, I'm not even headed back to Israel. I'm going to get as far away from God and His temple and everything else and I'm just going to sit here and pout. So Jonah goes to the east side of the city. And there he makes himself a shelter. He sits in his shade and he just waits to see what's going to happen. Then God provides a vine and a vine grows up and over his head and it gives him some shade. So he's sitting there in the cool of the vine. And that's not bad. But at dawn the very next day, as he continues to sit and pout, God sent a worm to chew up the vine and the vine shrivels up. And then God sends one of those killer scorching winds that just are so hot. So now Jonah's sitting out there and his vine is gone as he continues to pout. And he's really, really getting angry in addition to pouting. And so Jonah says, quote, Oh, it'd be better if I just died. I just might as well be dead. And that's literally what he says. It'd be better for me to die than to live. And so God says to Jonah again, like this. So, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And Jonah says, yep, I do. I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> I really like this story. This guy would have been a great guy to, well, not really. I was going to say a great guy to chum around with, but he was probably miserable to chum around with. Um, but it had been fun to just talk to him and, and get a load of him. Um, so in Jonah 4, the vine withers. He says, it'd be better for me to die. And uh, ooh, here we go. And here's the way Jonah 4 ends. But Yahweh said, you've been concerned about this vine, even though you didn't tend it or make it grow. He says, it sprang up overnight, it died overnight. But Nineveh, which isn't an overnight thing, Nineveh, remember, has been around for 1,500 years at this point in time. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. And a bunch of cattle on top of that. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? And with that, the book's over. That's it. That's the end of the book. Now, as you look at Jonah, there have been three approaches to uh, interpreting Jonah. The first approach is a historical approach. A uh, historical approach says he's in the fish. Not a whale, understand, but he's in a fish. And... One of the big problems with the historical approach is it does not work with modern science. It takes the miraculous intervention of God. While there may be fish big enough to eat a whole man, a whole man is not going to stay alive breathing in the water for three days and nights. 
and then be regurgitated and, and not, you know, it, it, it's not something that happens outside of a miracle of God. Neither does the plant grow overnight and provide shade in one night and then, you know, be gone. So the problems with a historical understanding is it's going to take miracles for it to happen. That's not a problem for me because I think it takes a miracle for any of us to be here to start with. And the same God who did the miracles of creating the world and creating you and creating me, the same God who does miracles in my life on a regular basis, if my eyes will be open enough to see them, is not without an ability to create a fish, to swallow Jonah, to cause a vine to grow up overnight. I, this is the same God who's going to bring Jesus back from the dead. That took a miracle too. This is the same God who, when he becomes flesh, can make a blind man see and a deaf man hear and a lame man walk, who can raise Lazarus from the dead. This is the same God dealing with prophets in the Old Testament who would send Elijah out, Elisha out, and allow him to bring uh, a woman's son back from the dead. Who some people in Jewish thought believe was Jonah, by the way. It would have been the right era for Jonah and the right area for Jonah. But nobody knows. Um, so I don't have any problem with that. A historical understanding is fine. Uh, the, the, the issue that I have is... I hate for people to take the book of Jonah and in fighting over whether or not it should be understood historically, people miss the point of the book. Because we need to get the point of the book. The point of the book was not a history lesson. The point of the book is its message. So if we approach it and understand it historically and believe it to be a historical event, that's fine. But let's don't stop there. Let's go see the message that's meant to be conveyed by this book. It's listed in the prophets for a reason. Okay? A second approach that uh, uh, is there is the allegorical approach. The allegorical approach um, uh, is one that says that this story is being written by a prophet as an allegory to express um, points that God wants to make. Historically in Christianity, the interpretation has been that Jonah's name means dove. And dove, we know from the Psalms and from Hosea 11.11, dove was often a symbol for Israel. And so the, the Jonah is to be Israel. And in the allegorical interpretation that's, that's typical there, Jonah is, is, as Israel, was supposed to be proclaiming to Assyria, Nineveh, and the pagan countries who God is. And how he should change your life. And that you should repent. And that you should be right before God. And it should affect the way you live. And instead of Israel doing what God had told Israel to do. And being a light unto the nations. Israel said no. We don't want to do that. We're going to do our own stuff. And instead of turning right they turn left. And so God was putting Israel into a time of death. And had appointed someone or a great fish or a kingdom uh, the, the Babylonians to devour Israel until Israel would move to a time of repentance and would come out of that time of repentance and then would become the light of the world, though not without some sour grapes among some of them. That's the allegorical understanding. There are allegories given in the Old Testament, in the prophet times. I've detailed them a little bit more in your outline, but you'll find in 2 Samuel 14, you'll find in Judges 9, allegorical 
examples of God using allegories to teach the people. A problem with this, however, you take the allegorical interpretation and you look at the other allegories in the Old Testament and either A, they make it clear they're allegories, which Jonah doesn't, or B, they're a whole lot shorter. And so the allegorical approach is not without some problems. It's also kind of goosey because if you try to look and sort through all of the different details, there are a lot of details in there that don't make sense. Why are they in there if it's an allegory? A third problem with the allegorical approach is you've got to square it with what Jesus says about Jonah in the New Testament and how Jesus saw Jonah. Because Jesus speaks of Jonah as a historical figure, uh, more so than as an allegorical figure. Third approach, what's called the parabolic, comes from the word parable. Best parable example you can think of is the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to get a point across. A parable is kind of like an allegory, um, uh, but, but a little more general. A parable is not something where you dissect and understand, you know, A represents B and B represents C. Everything doesn't have a point. The whole story is trying to teach a general message. So a good example in the Old Testament is when Nathan comes to King David after David's sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. And, and Nathan comes to David and says to David, I got to tell you about a fella who was a poor fella. He only had one sheep. And there's this real rich guy who had a bunch of sheep. And the rich guy had some people coming to visit. So the rich guy said, hey, don't take one of my many sheep, but just go kill that one sheep owned by that one fella. And let's take it and use it to feed. And as King David hears the story, he says, King David says, that's just horrible. I want to know who that guy is. He deserves to die. And at that point, Nathan the prophet turns around, points the finger at David and says, that's you. I was telling you a parable, David. You didn't get it. You thought it was a real story. But it's you. And that's what you did when you took Bathsheba. When you have your harems already. And she was the one wife of this man. And then you killed the man. And David, at that point, moved to repentance. So, um, um, a, a third uh, approach of some good Christian scholars, too. Uh, please understand, I believe we take the Bible literally. You have heard that from me. You'll never hear anything else. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You'll never hear otherwise from me. I'm big on it. It's an important issue to me. and It's an issue worth fighting for because I think it's the integrity of the church and all we stand for. But as we look at the... The inerrancy of Scripture, what it means is Scripture is perfect and complete and without error in what Scripture claims to be saying. So when Nathan comes and gives that story to David, we can read Scripture fairly and adduce that it was a parable, not a true story. When Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is a parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not something that actually happened. When Jesus tells the parable of, of the prodigal son, it's a parable. It's not something that happened, but it's there to teach a point. So, so there is honest integrity uh, 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 behind some people who view this as a parable to try and teach a message. And the message of the parable really isn't different than the message of the historical approach, most likely. And here is the message. Let's start with Christ's usage of it, because that's important. In Matthew 12, 20, 38 through 42, I got an email once from somebody. said, Lanier, is there anywhere in the Bible where it's prophesied this is going to be in the tomb for three days and three nights? My response was yes, in Jonah. 
kind of scratch their heads. But Jonah 12, verse 38 through 42, the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, teacher, we want a miraculous sign from you. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign. None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. See, that, that's, uh, those kinds of passages are, are frequently leaned on for the historical perspective because Christ is speaking in a way where it looks like he's referencing this as a historical event. And certainly, we're not going to be smarter on Scripture than Christ. Um, even still, uh, uh, the way Christ is speaking, he's speaking to people who have that understanding. So I, I'm not throwing rocks and kicking anybody out of my church or I'm not kicking out of anybody else's church or I'm not leaving a church because someone says to me, I think Jonah was a parable uh, uh, as opposed to uh, a historical fact. Uh, I, I don't think that's a dividable issue as long as everybody's agreeable that every word that's in there is in there because God put it in there. And if it's a parable, it's in there for God's reasons. Okay? It's not just, gee, some guy made something up. All right? Um, God's concern is for everyone. That's part of the message of Jonah. Whether they're in our group or not, God has concern. Haughtiness and pride have no place in ministry and no place in the man or woman of God. Haughtiness and pride is childishness. Don't be proud over what you have. Don't be proud over what you believe. Don't be proud over what you do. Don't think you're better than anyone else, even if they're a pagan wretch lying in filthy vermin on the street. Because God made them, and that's why they're valuable. And God made you, and that's your real value. The real value you and I have in life is that Jesus Christ was willing to die for us. Let me say that again. The real value you and I have in life the real value. It's not our checkbook. It's not our job. The real value you and I have is Jesus Christ was willing to die for us. And that value, every human being has. Answer the call of God and obey it. Now, human, four minutes. Nahum is a little bit different. Nahum is at a time where the city of Nineveh is not repenting. The city of Nineveh is evil. And Nahum said, God is coming and God's going to wipe you out. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And there are some wonderful snippets uh, of references to God in Nahum. So let's just spend a minute and a half, literally, and look at the character of God conveyed in the language of Nahum, the minor prophet. God takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Um, well, yeah, I've done this differently. All right, we're going to do it this way. Nineveh's downfall is prophesied by Nahum, and Nahum says, Nineveh, you are going down, and the reason you're going down is because you have total disregard for God. And God is compassionate, and he uses those words. He says, God is compassionate. He's, quote, slow to anger and great in power. Quote, God is a jealous and avenging God. Quote, God is good, a refuge in times of trouble. God cares for those who trust in Him. 
But for you, Nineveh, who plot evil against the Lord and counsel wickedness, God is going to come against you. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Because the bottom line is, God is going to see destruction come down on Nineveh. And this is a very direct prophecy from Nahum. It says, God's picked his troops. And I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. You're not any better than Thebes, which Assyria, Nineveh, had conquered in 663, just 50 years before Nineveh fell down. You're not any better than Thebes. And if, you keep, if we keep going, the last words of the book of Nahum, this is the way it ends. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Ladies and gentlemen, history shows us that the prophecy was correct. This city, which had been there for 1,500 years, one of the greatest cities of history, in 612 B.C., was conquered by the Babylonians. And we can go to the Babylonian Chronicles, which were written for the king, Nabopolassar, who conquered Nineveh, and read what happened. I slaughtered the land of Assyria... I turned the hostile land into heaps and ruins. The Assyrian, who since distant days had ruled over all the peoples, and with his heavy yoke had brought injury to the people of the land, his feet from Akkad I turned back. His yoke I threw off. One final quote. This is the actual events of taking the city of Nineveh that we read about in the Chronicles. A strong attack they made against the city in the month of Ab, which is around July-August. The blank day, we can't make it out in the text. The city was captured. A great defeat of the people was made. On that day, the Assyrian king was killed. The great spoil of Nineveh and the temple, they carried off and turned the city into a ruined mound and heaps of debris. Please understand, Nineveh was destroyed and never again resurrected as a city. It had been there 1,500 years. The word of the Lord says, my decision is final. You're going down. And the city went down and the city has gone from history. Now, where does that leave us? Number one, God does reign over all people. I really emphasize this because we need to remember that that God's reign over all people includes us when we ignore Him. See, Jonah ignores God. God still has His hand in Jonah's life. You can ignore God. God still has His hand in your life. Just because you say no doesn't change God's call. God's going to gently move you. And if you're attentive and your eyes are open, when you're, when you're asking yourself, gee, why is this happening to me? You'll be able to say, oh, this is the Lord. This is because I'm ignoring Him. This is the way God's moving me. This is what God's got me doing. You can see the hand of the Lord in your life. God cares for you. God cares for you. You just soak that up for a minute. There's not a human being in this room that God doesn't care for. 
There's not a human being in this room. And, and that's not like he cared for you 20 years ago before you did ABC. He cares for you right now. Right now, at this precise moment in your life, God cares for you in such a great regard, I can't even begin to describe it, that Jesus Christ would do what he did just for you. Don't let it stop there. Please understand that's how God wants you to feel about other people. God wants you to have his heart, not the heart of Jonah. We're to treat people as God would. That's the golden rule. And we're to obey God, even in the small things. Those points make sense? Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the great diversity of things and messages and ways you've taught us in your scripture. Lord, you've got wonderful stories in scripture that appeal to us at all different ages. All of us as children and all of us who have children or grandchildren, Lord, know how wonderful the story of Jonah is to tell and what a wonderful way you have worked through history and through your scripture to teach us to honor your call. Lord, I confess there are so many things in our lives that you have asked us to do that many times we look at and say, yeah, but what's the point? Lord, I confess to you. I know that there are some of us who feel that way about uh, any number of things. I've heard it about baptism. God says it. Yeah, but what's the point? There are people who feel that way about going to church. There are people who feel that way about uh, tithing. There are people who feel that way about ministering to the poor. There are people who feel that way about treating others the way we want to be treated. Lord, we all embrace those feelings at different times, but we lay it down and confess it to you as sin because we want to be a people who obey you, even in the things we perceive to be small. Put in us a spirit of obedience, a heart that desires you above all other things. Create in us, Lord, a a striving and a desire to please you with our life. Keep us safe and bring us back together next week, Lord. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you. You you were reading at your computer last night, weren't you? Listen to yeah. that, that thing that somebody yeah. said yeah. about church and Presbyterian. Yeah. You said he 